This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. So welcome to my session about Taproot. So let me first ask, first ask the audience, who has heard of Taproot before? Okay, not a lot. And then we will start at the beginning. So basically there are Bitcoin transactions, right? And with Bitcoin transaction, most people, when they think of Bitcoin transaction, they think about a simple one, like me sending some Bitcoin to Levin. So I have to sign a, the transaction, he receives it, he can further send the Bitcoin to anyone he likes, basically. But in Bitcoin, you obviously also have other options to include scripts in transactions. Scripts can be multisig stuff, meaning two out of three keys have to sign a transaction. It can be either these two people sign or after after a time lock, after a time has passed, which is then a time lock function, only then can the out can that Bitcoin be spent by these and these people signing. So you can do quite complex schemes, which is obviously pretty helpful. Also, if you think like what happens if you die? So there's a lot of schemes that focus on that saying that if I didn't touch my coins within two years, then my mother or a friend of mine has a key which, with which they can then access my Bitcoin. So there's like schemes like these. So back in the beginnings, it was like a script is basically a little program which says like if else then time lock and all these nice little the nice little script language we have in Bitcoin. So in the beginning it was that the whole script was in the output. So what does a script mean? It's data, right? How do you pay transaction fees in Bitcoin? It's calculated per byte. So the bigger a transaction, the more fees you pay. So if you have the whole script in the output and the script gets, the longer it gets, the more expensive for you it is. So that's why there was a soft fork in 2012, which allowed for P2SH, which is pay to script hash. That meant that you no longer put the script in, but you just put a hash in. So but what that meant is I could send a transaction which had a script in it, which could be super complicated. It was just a hash. So data wise, that was again kind of cheap. But for then spending from this script, so if I if now I now had the rules that either Jürgen and I had to sign or Simon and I had to sign that we could spend that coin, we need to reveal the whole script again. So it's basically at the time of spending these coins according to the rules, you still have to put in the whole script, meaning again that there's a lot of data in it. And from a privacy perspective, obviously everyone knows that I was involved, that Jürgen was involved and that Simon was involved. Even though Jürgen and I signed the transaction and Simon never did anything. He was maybe our backup or our boss who was responsible if something goes wrong. So, so from the privacy perspective, he was revealed even though he had nothing to do with the actual transaction in the end. 
So one idea that came up then was MAST. M-A-S-T, it's an abbreviation for Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees. So now, going back to the examples, let's now say I have either Jürgen I sign, or we wait for a year and then Simon can sign, or Levin and Yara can sign. These are now three different scenarios that could come into place, right? And instead of just doing a script with the if, else, or operators, we separate the three schemes, like saying Jürgen I sign, saying we wait for a year and Simon signs, or Levin and, I, Levin and Yara sign. So we separate them and put them in an abstract syntax tree. So meaning we do a Merkle tree. Who knows what Merkle trees are? So basically in every Bitcoin block, transactions are ordered in Merkle trees. And Merkle trees are really like these nice little trees. So what you basically do is you always take, like in a block it's a transaction one and transaction two, then they go up, put together to this knot, and this way you can build complex trees with with different depths, it can be like there can be several la layers, and what this gives you is in the end you have this one point, which embraces all the different transactions in them. So basically, these are four transactions. Then you hash them together. Then you get this one. You do them together. Then you have this one, and in the end you have one. That's the Merkle root. So um, that's then basically from when, when we're now again talking about the block, the Merkle tree root is put in the block header. The, the, I mean, the, the, the idea about Merkle trees is that uh, you can just by uh, just by disclosing the root and a few hashes along the path, you can show that something was part of the, the tree without having to disclose the, the rest of the elements in this tree. So you have all the leaves of the tree, or the, the points that do not have any, um, any any children, and you can have as many as you want. So you could have, like, in a, in a binary tree, you could have 1,024 um, different leaves. Uh, represent them by, hash them up, so you have 10 layers of this binary tree. And just by the root and the nine elements along the way, uh, you can you can identify the, the object. Right? So the... Um, this is why the why the root makes it into the to the header of the block, and then everybody who knows his individual path to the one thing that he's interested in can prove that his was part of the full tree was part of the one thousand twenty four by disclosing just just the, the root and nine additional numbers. Levin is getting ahead. Oh, I'm not there yet, but that's exactly <laughs> right. So basically, what you do now with the script, instead of the, the last leaves being transactions, they are now the part of the script, like the first one is that I and Jörg sign, the second is time log, and the other one is another group that signs. So basically now, you don't have the whole script anymore, but just this Merkle root, right? So the top one. And then, if Jürg and I sign a transaction to spend it, we need to get access to the first script. And now, exactly what Levin said before, I don't have to show the whole tree and therefore every script to everyone, 
but I can just go through the points to that script and in the end I only reveal that script. So when I spend the, when Jürgen and I sign a transaction and spend this way, no one knows that there was a time lock or that Simon was involved as well. So that gives you obviously some privacy benefits. So that's what basically happened with Mast, saying that you no longer have to reveal the whole script. Yes, Levin? Can I, so, sorry, yeah. um, maybe, maybe just for, for the wording of it, um, in an abstract syntax tree, maybe not everybody knows that, but an abstract syntax tree is not something that came up in the context of Merkleist abstract syntax trees. An abstract syntax tree is very known in computer science. It's an intermediate representation of a program. Typically, if you have a program that you write in any compiled language in C or in Go or whatever, uh, you would have the, the program code, uh, you would compile that to an abstract syntax tree, and that thing is then translated to the machine language. So this is just uh, essentially taking that abstract syntax, syntax tree, merkleizing it by, um, by taking this tree and putting all the, the hashes at the right places, uh, and then using that. So essentially allowing it for, for any program that you can uh, express in the respective programming language, which is not that many in Bitcoin. Bitcoin has an uh, like deliberately simplified programming language. Did I also go, go ahead again? No, it's fine, it's fine. I, I, to be honest, I didn't know how much into details I wanted to go for <laughs> that everyone needs to know or doesn't need to know. So now we're still at mass. So how do we get to Taproot? So the idea of Taproot is, is based on mass, so on these Merkleist abstract syntax trees. And the intermediate step that came up was like, hmm, this sounds like a contract, right? Because if you have contracts, what do you do? Basically, yes, we want to do, we want to have an agreement, we want to work together, we want to marry or whatever you can do contracts for, so you both agree. But agreeing is not enough, you do the contract because in the case something goes wrong, you want to be protected. But the contract you only need in case something goes wrong and then you want to show the contract and go to court. So the idea is the same, that if we are a group of people with the script, with the time locks, with the different people signing, that actually in the normal case, and this is the, the assumption underlying Taproot, um, we all agree anyways, right? And if we all agree, we can just aggregate all the signatures that are involved and then we can sign that transaction. So we don't need a script, so we don't reveal anything. So the idea is, and this I think I have to again show with a little picture, that um, for the top one, we just add another thingy on the top, which is the we all agree branch. So we, we all agree in this part, so we all know that we want to work together, that we want to sign a transaction, so we can all work together. So this is like the default branch. And if the, the goal is that if we use this default branch, because that's basically just n of n multisig, um, that no one ever knows that there even were scripts because we don't have to reveal any leaf. And we just, it should look like a single transaction, like me sending money to someone. Obviously there we have another problem because you can see if a transaction is a multisig transaction or a single sig transaction. But that's where, and I know I said I talk about Taproot, but Taproot doesn't really work if we don't have Schnorr signatures. So that's why where Schnorr, Schnorr signatures come into place. Schnorr signatures were invented by Klaus Schnorr in, I think, 
the paper was from 1991, so they're quite old. They are seen as quite efficient and quite simple for what they are. Um, and a lot of people have thought about Schnorr, especially in Bitcoin, for a while. Some people even say that Schnorr should have been in Bitcoin from the beginning. Problem was, their Schnorr patented Schnorr signatures. So that doesn't really work with the open source stuff because you cannot take something that's patented. And the pat patent uh, only expired in 2008. So yes, it is still before a little bit before Bitcoin because I think it was in January 2008. Um, but only now we can use it, so now we can implement it. Schnorr has some some advantages over the normal ECDSA. For one thing, it is that it, ha it has provable security. Basically this is, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I think that's not the right place for it. It means that they are strongly unforgeable and compared to ECDSA, they don't rely, for that proof, that proof is not reliant on additional assumptions. So they are just better. Then they are also linear, which is one thing we need for our Everyone Agrees branch. What you can do with Schnorr signature is basically you can add up different signatures and then you have the, the sum of the signatures, which is again just the signature. So basically doing N of N multisig schemes means it just looks like a normal signature because now with Schnorr you can add up the signatures. So basically if we do this we all agree branch with Schnorr signatures this basically looks like any single transaction. Also meaning like that Chainalysis, that H analysis tool can no longer detect if there were any scripts, if there were any special conditions attached. So the chance to cluster these kind of transactions because Obviously, if I'm a normal person and I'm paying a coffee at a bar with Bitcoin, I probably don't use like time locks or anything. So clustering is le less likely because it really just looks like a normal, normal transaction. Schnorr signatures have another advantage, advantage, which is really important. They are batch verifiable. So that also goes for Schnorr and Taproot. It's it is expected that there's a lot of efficiency gains. Batch verification means that right now, if you have to check signatures, it takes you, takes you the same amount of time if you check every individual signature or basically all of them together. With Schnorr signature, it's faster if you do batch verification, so batching the signatures, to, batching them together and checking them together, then verifying every single line. So other things you can do with Schnorr signatures and which obviously also helps with the we all agree branch is that you can also do distributed key generation so you can do these threshold key schemes in a way simpler way that, that they are now which basically means you can for the we all agree branch you can either do n of n or k of n threshold signatures and you're almost fine um, so that's why it's amazing. Even though it all comes together in the end, it's actually three BIPs. It's BIP340, which is the Schnorr signatures. Then we have BIP341, which is Taproot. 
342, which is validation of taproot scripts, so it's tab scripts. Um, so, I, sorry, sorry, um, I might have a question. What is this taproot thing then? I mean, you discussed mast up to now, but is mast and taproot now the same No, thing yeah, taproot is basically the development from mast that you have this we all agree branch. Oh, that's the only difference. Yeah, it's also that also then has to do with the ordering of the oh. of the scripts and some more details and different specifications as far as I know, but I don't want to go too much into details, but basically it's really this this we all agree branch, which and a few days ago I think it was that a anonymous group posted three emails to the to the mailing list saying they they don't want to be they don't want anyone to know who they are because it doesn't matter because it's not about politics but they for example preferred mass to to taproot because they think that this we all agree branch they don't see where that comes from for example that's like the least technical they say but saying like is is that actually case it's an assumption we make that we have this we all agree branch um, which you don't have in masks. There you just have to reveal one of the leaves, right? Um, so there's now some discussions about that. But generally speaking, Taproot is pretty much accepted by most of the people. So really that the idea is, yes, most of the time we do all agree, then it's like a normal signature. If we don't agree, then it's like a court case where we use the branch with the, with the time lock in it. And then obviously everyone knows that we use that time lock branch. Because again, if you then want to do a script, then at some point you can reveal that script. Um, now I was at 3.42, which is the tab scripts. Obviously to be able to implement um, taproot and consecutively schnorr, you need to change some of the opcodes, um, which is basically what BIP 3.42 does. But I think we never actually really talked about opcodes, and I don't really know who's familiar. But that's why why I don't I'm not really talking about the the opcodes. But in the end, even though it's three different bits, it basically needs all together to make um, to make the blockchain more efficient and more private. At the same time. At the same time. Yes. So why have those BIPs, uh, why haven't they, they been uh, implemented already? I mean, they the have been uh, around a long time, the, the proposals? Or? Mm, talks about them the have been around yeah. since, I think, 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Schnorr definitely much longer than that. Sh like having Schnorr, yes, but like actually like in something that resembles what we have now, it's already quite a while. Um, in the end, the BIPs themselves are only from like January this year. And what also one argument is, it's like there, a lot of these things have come up. Schnorr signature was one thing that people talked about for a while. Then we have Taproot, which was also in discussion for a while. Then, are, then there are like proposals like um, Graftroot or Groot. So, which, which are similar, then it's the question about do we need these and these additional opcodes? So there was really a lot about discussions about similar things, which are not all the same. So which one do we take or which one does the community take? 
which one do people want, which is too much or too much change, what can we implement. So it always takes a little time, I think, in the end. I mean, um, I think it's, it's, there's, there's always the usability is what works. Security is what does not work on purpose. And if you, if you add more, um, more things, if you add more possibilities, you have to make absolutely sure that you do not unintentionally allow something that would compromise security. Bitcoin is very extreme on that. Um, other chains are, have, have a different um, trade-off. And allowing more flexibility does bring danger. And that does introduce new dangerous things, maybe. Now, we discussed this briefly, I think, in the session about game theory uh, on blockchain, where, where we discussed, okay, how do like, applications of blockchains maybe compromise the security of the underlying uh, block, of the underlying consensus model of the blockchain. And, and this might go in that direction. So going slow, being very careful to review everything is certainly a good idea. Yeah, and I mean, additionally, these are, these are all obviously soft fork proposals, so there's no hard forks invo involved. But still, um, if, you, if you do the soft fork and interact with all the software and then you do a taproot transaction, then for the old software, it will look as a anyone can spend script. So it's highly encouraged that everyone upgrades. And then you have new opcodes, which especially for backward compatibility are also not always easy. Do you have more and more wallet service providers which implement things differently? So I think we should be careful with what functionality is actually needed and which one isn't. This branch says I and Levin need to sign a transaction and then I die. Then, then basically no one can do that any longer, right? So this is gone. So then the second possibility is now Levin has to wait for a year then maybe he can sign himself. So if I don't do anything in that year because I'm obviously dead, he can invoke that script on his own. So it's really about the possibilities to go through, um, which you can or not, cannot do. Maybe we have the third option which says, if I die waiting a year for your money is kind of bad for you. So we'll do a two, a two month time lock, but saying my lawyer who has a key I gave him or he has his own key and the third option says if my lawyer agrees to sign the transaction with Levin then Levin can have the money after two months. Obviously I trust my lawyer, right? Normally. <laughs> so in the end everything needs to be on-chain and if you're yes. dependent on off-chain properties then you need an oracle to feed that information in which, which would be the lawyer in this example. Exactly. But he's also just a normal person, right? The chain doesn't care if he's a lawyer or if he isn't. So um, one narrative about Taproot is that it somewhat allows Ethereum-like smart contracts on Bitcoin. I never really understood that meme and also the examples that you gave now are more along the line, along the line of glorified Bultusig. So what, where are like the, the boundaries of the possibilities of Taproot and where does this it's, it's an Ethereum competitor thing come from. It doesn't really introduce global state, which is kind of the, the USP of, of Ethereum. Um, I don't really understand that either, because in the end, you're still bound by the scripting language that Bitcoin has, and you cannot get out of it. What you have through this tree structure is that you now can have more, um, more options than before. 
So the script can basically be longer. So within the bounds of what you can do, you have more options of doing that. Yeah. But it's, I don't think it's Ethereum comparable. There is something atomic swap like. Well, atomic swaps just require that, uh, that spending something requires revealing a secret, which kind of is very much compatible with this idea of different branches that you have to, to, to show in order to be able to execute them. So um, maybe, maybe, maybe there's always this, um, this, this red herring, as uh, Vitalik Buterin uh, called it once, Turing completeness in Ethereum. Who, does, who knows what Turing completeness is? What it is? Yes. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a class, I mean, that's quite a lot for the audience, that was quite a lot. That's a class of programs that are expressible in, in, in a language. And if, if a language is Turing complete, then, uh, then they are, if two languages are Turing complete, then everything that can be expressed in one can also be expressed in the other. Right? That, that's basically one word I'm telling it not the um, computer science version of it. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin scripting language is intentionally not Turing complete. And the main reason why it is not, it's actually very difficult to, to, to invent a language that's not Turing complete, Magic the Gathering is Turing complete, unintentionally again, is that, uh, that you don't have loops in Bitcoin, in Bitcoin scripting language. You cannot say, like, execute that, execute that, now compare the values, and if they are equal, then go back to the beginning. This go back to the beginning is something that, that doesn't work. You only can go forward. You can never go backwards. That prevents Turing completeness. Ethereum can do that. But in a sense, Ethereum is also not Turing complete because you have to set an upper bound for the amount of of gas that you can spend, which kind of gives an upper amount of the number of loops that you can do. But it's, it's kind of much, much less restricted than Bitcoin in that regard. While if you do, uh, do mass, if you do much less abstract industries, then you could have one branch for, I do one loop, I do two loops, I do three loops, for up to a billion. It doesn't really matter. You hash all of that into, uh, into one Merkle group. And then upon execution, you can just figure out how many does it take for this particular branch, uh, and you, you just go there. So um, while you would not be able to, to, to put that, that whole script on the blockchain, because it's just too big and there is an upper limit of the size of the script mm -hmm. that you can do with Merkle's abstract syntax trees, you do get privacy, yes, but you also get, uh, get like these size benefits, um, which reduce by like, dramatically um, the, the, the overhead increases the possibility of doing loops kind of indirectly by, by unrolling the loops. So what I maybe have to say there for the security assumptions, if you do things like that, because again, this we all agree branch is the main privacy thing there actually is, because if you reveal a script, you just have to reveal the script that you actually used. But by analyzing the depth of the tree, because you have to show the way to that branch, you reveal some information. And depending on how you may, may see how potentially, how, depending on how you order, how you put up the tree, revealing how many other possibilities there, there are, which could also reveal something. Or if, you do the, if your software does the trees in a specific way, revealing also something about you. But that's just a side note. That's why this we all agree branch so important. One thing that's not clear to me, what is in the in the node of the Merkle ASTs? In the nodes? In the, in the nodes, you just have the hash of the other branch. Mm -hmm. 
So you have the um, leaves, you mean? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean not the leaves, but those that join yeah. the leaves. So you, you have the, the leaves, which have uh, the, 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 the program flow according to that. And then you take the two leaves and do the hash, mm -hmm. uh, which you put then on the node. So you always have to put the, the joint hash of the you leaves the into the node, um, which, which makes it such that if you reveal your path and you know which hash the other path has, then you can calculate uh, all the hashes um, after, the, after the rule. But that's why you kind of need the way to go until you get to the leaf. And then you also know how many knots in between were involved, so you know the depth of the tree um, and can, conf okay. can figure out some, make at least some say, statements about what kind of transaction it is. Yeah. If, okay. it's a, if it's a balanced tree, then you would have the, the uh, logarithm for phases two of the number of, um, of options, but it doesn't have to be a balanced tree. So in Taproot, it's, um, I think it's advised that you build the tree not like balanced, but based on probabilities. So if you know, if we probably don't agree, most likely this tree comes with the highest, this leaf comes up with the, this script of that leaf comes up with the highest chance that you organize the tree according to that. That's why there's only one node in the, I mean, in the node, we will all agree branch, it's only one node, right? So that's very unbalanced. Like exactly, exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. But because it's, as per assumption, most likely used, that makes total sense, right? And it's the cheapest, obviously, because it's just one signature, if you have Schnorr. Any more questions? Now everyone knows what Taproot is. So could everybody follow up to the very end? It was a very technical topic that I liked. I try to put it really simple. I put it really yeah, simple. So, right? Sorry to jump in and destroy that, uh, that, that level. <laughs> it's fine i try to make it really simple <laughs> this episode was brought to you by crypto finance we are happy to receive comments and feedback email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch